It is so good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Resonate. This is your first time. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. Um, that's Omid. That's the worship leader here. And um, just, yeah, we can give, yeah, we can clap for Omid. <laughs> um, uh, I want to get started, but before I do, we're in a series uh, that's all about context. Uh, to give you an example, I moved seven times before I turned the age of 14. So that means there's an average of two years that I spent in any given place. I went to three different high schools and two different middle schools. So context to me was very, very important. I learned very quickly what flew and what didn't fly. We're going to talk a lot about that this morning. Um, but understanding where we are, I think, is a really, really important tool to getting through life. And we talked about this last week, but this whole series is designed to lead you up into this crazy season we call the holiday season with these crazy people we call family and to get you at that Thanksgiving table, that Christmas dinner table, and understanding context. That crazy Uncle George may not be that crazy, he's just from a different time and place, and that we can understand him better if we actually listen. I do not have an Uncle George, but again, I'm using the word George for the next year, so any name that comes up in any of my stories is just gonna be George. It's gonna be fun. Um, but we're, we're moving towards understanding how to understand each other and truly listen, not just go, oh, well, that's where he's from, that's his story, therefore I have to give him a pass. No, it's listening and empathizing and understanding because if we can do that, if we can truly listen to each other, then a whole lot is actually gonna change. And that's the whole point of why we gather. Um, and in light of a week like this, again, I feel like every time I come to you guys each week, it's like, oh, there's something new. Uh, in light of a week like this, understanding our context and where we are culturally, right here and right now, is vitally important. I, uh, I once hear a, heard a pastor say, uh, in light of like just the, the ever-changing news cycle, uh, I was in a, in a group function with him, and, he, and he, he basically told me, he's like, I will not let our church be held hostage by the news cycle. Like, it will not dictate what we talk about. And for some reason, that struck a nerve in me, and I didn't understand, and then as I unpacked it, and went through, I was like, no, 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 that's the whole point. These spaces are not meant to do fanciful sermons or to speak fanciful about different things. These, these spaces are meant to pay attention to what's going on around us and actually respond to that and leave wiggle room to do that because no matter what we plan for in these spaces, the most important thing we can do is call out what's happening in our daily lives and actually leave a space for us to sit in it. Um, I want to give us some space this morning to uh, pray through what's happening with the Napa fires in Anaheim and Puerto Rico. We're in the midst of craziness right now. Uh, and the whole thing that I want to talk about this morning is care. Care, because as people of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we're actually called into tremendous amounts of care. And I looked up the, uh, the antonym to care, and it's really interesting. It's not like ignorance or anything, it's, it's forgetting. The opposite of caring is forgetting. And I think with the pace of everything that's going on in this world, it's so easy to just forget the last thing that happened and move on to the next one. So I don't wanna leave just space for Napa, I wanna leave space for Puerto Rico, I wanna leave space for Vegas. It's all still here in the world and we can hold on to it all. If we're caring, it means not forgetting and it means leaving space for things like this. So I'm just gonna let us sit. Omida's gonna play just a little bit. Uh, we'll just sit for like 30 seconds to a minute and I invite you to pray if that's your bet. If not, 
I invite you to sit, meditate. I invite you to um, take out your phone if you wish. <laughs> uh, but for those of us who are the praying kind, I would love it if we could spend some time uh, praying for all of this and, uh, and gaining wisdom from the Lord. So um, let's bow our heads and, and, uh, and pray. So God, uh, we recognize that it, it's tough to pray in moments like this. And oftentimes we can say, oh, we're praying, we're praying, that, you know, and we think that that is the, the ultimate Christian solution. But Lord, I, I pray in this space for this community that we would be a community that would not only talk about it, but do something about it. So Lord, as we prepare as a church for how we're going to help and what we're going to do, I pray that you would use us as your hands and your feet as we want to get into it with you. I find it fascinating the deeper you go into any sort of tragedy, the more you see your care, your kindness, your love. And I pray that we could hold on to that care and that kindness and that love, even in times where it is so easy to be cynical and to latch onto the crazy. I thank you for spaces like this where, where we can do this. I mean, we can talk about the things that matter most, we can pray about the things that matter most, and we can leave this space and act upon the things that matter most because we follow such an amazing God. So thank you for this morning, Lord. Don't let me mess this up. Amen. Um, so, uh, I want to talk about entertainment. <laughs> Switching gears massively. Uh, I will come home uh, from a meeting or one, like whatever, wherever I'm out. If it's the evening and Chelsea is home alone, uh, she will pop on Netflix and she'll watch a show called Parenthood. Anybody heard of Parenthood or This Is Us? Newsflash, they're the same show, <laughs> same exact show. Anyway, she'll watch Parenthood, and I walk in, and I come in, and, uh, and she's devastated, <laughs> like just weeping, crying. And I'm like, why do you do this to yourself? First time I discovered this show, I walk in, and she's like crying. She's like, I can't, this show is like, it's, it's designed to emotionally wreck me. And I was like, I don't know why you do that to yourself. Like, why do you want to emotionally wreck yourself? She's like, trust me, it's incredible. And guys... It's incredible. <laughs> I watched the whole dang thing, and I am not ashamed. Of, I, I will watch The Notebook any freaking day of the week. If you're a bird, I'm a bird. I'm a sucker for these stories, and I think we all secretly are in some capacity. You don't have to be like me and a total sappy, uh, sappy love story fiend, but if you love sports, you love the idea of rooting for something or some entity that you're doing as a group, and you're all pulling for the same thing, and it rips you raw when it doesn't go the right way. Or it fills you with sheer joy if it all goes the right way, right? 
That's what sports are. I, I, on Instagram a couple weeks ago, it seemed like everyone and their mom went to a Coldplay concert, which I didn't even know that that was still a thing. But uh, they went to a Coldplay concert, and I saw like on two separate things them say, like, I'm crying so hard right now at this Coldplay concert. One, use your time better. Two, <laughs> there's something about being in a space together all going for one thing. There's a reason when we come in this space, whether you're a singer or a not, when we, when, we, when we sing together, it's this odd cultural moment that we do almost nowhere else, where we're all singing together, united in the same words, and we're, we're breathing at the same rate. It's kind of the most mystical thing that we do, and we kind of casually come into it and we do it, but there's, there's not a lot of spaces in our lives where we are collectively on the same track. And that's why concerts are so special. That's why movies are so special. That's why churches are so special. This is why the heckler is some like gross, gross character. Because when they heckle or when they interrupt the flow, the entire audience is going like, no, 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 we're all supposed to be here, going the same direction. And when you do that, it's, it hurts. There are spaces in our lives and the way that we entertain ourselves that all gear, all gear towards laying our, our lives bare, shining a light on our most vulnerable parts. And sometimes we allow that in a corporate setting and sometimes we allow that privately, but very few times in our lives do we want to shine that light because that light is painful. That light brings up all the hidden junk that I have, all of that baggage that I carry from that previous relationship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When we shine a light on things, nothing can remain hidden. And so I want to talk about care, and I want to talk about light, and what that means in the Bible. And light is this fascinating uh, subject. So we'll go to light first, and then we'll, we'll loop back around to care. Um, the very beginning of the Bible, it's a book called Genesis. So if you just open up the Bible or your app, it's going to be the first thing that's on there. Uh, and it tells the story of us, basically. And it starts off uh, with a creation account. And this creation account has gotten us in a lot of trouble. And I want to disarm it for just one second. Because regardless if you're reading this literally or you're reading it carefully, what matters about the creation account is the very first few lines. Because everything follows that and everything is in the context of that. And the first few lines on the first day before any creation is made whatsoever, God says, let there be light. Let there be light. That's the very first thing that is ever commanded into existence. Let there be light. Now, light in every single world religion, not just ours, is a symbol for spiritual awareness. That's where we get the term enlightenment. And God says, let there be light, right at the very beginning. And that's important because it's not just about the creation account, the seven days, all of that stuff. It's about being aware that we are alive. From the very beginning, God says, let there be light. And he says, awareness, come into the world. Your eyes are now open. People, you can see that you exist. Let there be light. And I think that is so beautiful, but we get messed up in the muck of the other stuff. But let there be light says, See all that is around you and understand that God is in it. That God is across the street at the corner store. That God is in a church. That God is in a movie theater. That God is in great tragedy. All of that. Look around. Let there be light. Nothing is hidden. It's all God's work, and he's always working in it. 
Let there be light. Jesus even said, I'm the light of the world, uh, which is a very interesting statement. So we go from let there be light to I am the light. And basically what that means is the disciples are following around this guy. Their eyes are opened to everything. Because they're walking around and they're encountering people that don't look like them, don't dress like them, aren't from the same places. And Jesus embraces them and moves towards them. And the disciples are all there moving along with him, witnessing this stuff and questioning it the whole time. Going like, wait, wait, wait. You're not supposed to go and eat with these people. That's not the religious way. We're, we're here to set up this new kingdom thing. That's not the way it works. You're supposed to go into the temples. You're supposed to go into the, the synagogue. You're supposed to be preaching there, not out here. But God's whole plan in the incarnation of Jesus, which is a fancy, fancy religious word that just basically means like he's here, he becomes. His whole point is to shine a light on the things that in the religious tradition they had been pushing away kind of into the darkness for years and years and years. For people groups that they had kind of pushed aside and said like, we're just, we're not gonna, it's not like we're not dealing with it, but we're not dealing with it. We're just gonna keep it in ignorance and forget about it, right? And remember what's the opposite of forget? Care. And so as Jesus moves through, he starts going to all of these different people and all of these different crowds that don't really belong and don't really fit. And the whole message there is like guerrilla theater. He's not doing this. He's doing this because it's going to get written down. And he's going into these places and he's making a statement to say like, no, 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 you don't get it. These are the people I'm here for. I'm here to bring light to everyone. Not just in the temples. Not just uh, in the religious spaces. And that was a little uncomfortable for the day. And we're still wrestling with that. All of this has to do, and the way that we care, kind of has to do with where we believe God lives. And that's true, because that gives us context. Throughout history, God has been in a garden, right? That was the, the first understanding, and then we got booted out of the garden, and so God was someplace else. And then as we go through the Old Testament, we see God, uh, he's in a burning bush, and then he's on a mountain, and then he's in a cloud. That was the coolest part, he's in a cloud. <laughs> And then he moves from a cloud to a tabernacle, and the tabernacle is this kind of mobile temple that would move around, but that's where God existed. Tangibly, if you wanted to experience God, you would have to be near the tabernacle, because that is, quote-unquote, where God lived. And then from there, this really interesting thing happens, the, the tabernacle turns into a temple, which is this, like, fantastic, awesome culmination of all of the... Uh, Israelite culture and all of their religious identity is all wrapped into this giant, beautiful structure of brick and mortar. Like, it's the temple. And it, it's, it's a big deal. Because the story of Israel, if we're going from Genesis all the way over here, is a, is a nation that is constantly being thrown around, ping-ponged from slavery, out of slavery, into exile, back in their own country. I mean, they just have this crazy, tumultuous history. And they keep ping-ponging back and forth. And the temple, for that point in their history, in their context, that was their way of laying roots down, saying, like, we are finally here. We have a king. We've got God. And now we've got a temple where God lives. And for them in that history, they needed that sort of rootedness. They needed to understand that, no, 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 we're here. And I can point to that physical reminder, and I can tell you where God blesses people. Even more than that, if you were like, um, say, feeling guilty or shameful, 
if you were feeling any sort of distressful emotion, you could go to this temple, if you could afford it, you would go to the temple, you would make a sacrifice, and then you'd be able to walk out scot-free. Feeling like, yes. Right? I mean, that's, a, that's good news. If we had those spaces, like, I would surely want to go. It's, it's the, the freeing feeling of like, oh, I've been carrying around all this baggage, but I know that if I just go to the temple and I atone for whatever it is that I've done, I'm going to be forgiven. That's a pretty radical notion. But here's the deal. We don't have a temple anymore. In fact, where that temple sits is a point of major contention of like three world religions. And they're still arguing over the physical space. Going like, this is ours. No, this is ours. No, this is ours. No, this is ours. The real crazy part is that it's actually all of ours. <laughs> and that's nuts. This is the site, the very site that this temple sits on is the site that Muhammad is believed to have ascended into heaven. The site where this temple is is where Solomon built it. The site where this temple is is where Abraham binds Isaac up. It's a story in the Bible. It's a weird one. We're going to get to it in this context thing because he almost has to take the life of his only son. And he brings him up this mountain. This physical structure is just drenched in context for different cultures, different places, all laying claim to the same spot and saying, this is ours. As Christians, or followers of Jesus, there's a different way to look at this. And this is what's so profound and uniquely profound about the way that we do faith and about the Savior we believe in. Uh, Jesus had a very interesting relationship with this temple. Uh, the temple was around when he was around. And so he would, uh, he would roll around, and the whole story of the Gospels is Jesus starting off in one place in Galilee and moving towards Jerusalem, which is where the temple was. And again, that's all on purpose. That is straight up theater. It's a message. It's saying we're moving towards the religious center, and everything is about to change. So Jesus' weird relationship with the temple is this. Number one, he throws a tantrum in there and comes in with uh, whips. It's really weird. We're also going to get to that. Uh, and then number two, he claims that he's going to tear it down. So not great. If you're following a religious leader and you're going towards the religious mecca of the entire world and your whole culture, and he casually is like, hey, you tear this thing down, I'll rebuild it in three days. You're going to go, I need to follow a different rabbi. <laughs> but the disciples were reading into that literally. They were saying, what are you talking about? You're going to tear down the temple brick by brick? And I love it. Jesus just kind of like lets that hang there. And, and that's, that's for the reader. It's like a wink. You tear this down, I'll rebuild it in three days. So he doesn't have a great relationship with this temple. The whole point of that and the context of that, if you read it literally like the disciples probably did, and they're like, we need to keep Jesus away from the temple. <laughs> the whole rich context in that is that when Jesus comes, he comes to say, like, there's a new temple, and it's not a physical location. And it doesn't matter where you are, this temple is you. I am with you. So we have, we have the garden, we have uh, the bush, we have a cloud, we have the tabernacle, we have the temple, and now we have God, literally incarnate, walking among us. That's where God lives. And then after that, we have God in us. And the really crazy, interesting culmination of all of this, if you read the Bible all the way through to the end, is that we have the last iteration of this is we have us all together in a city. A city. 
It's weird language. So this is the, this is the whole series that we're kind of going to pull the weirdest stuff out of the Bible. We could just call it Revelation because <laughs> there's a lot of weirdness in there. Um, but let me read this verse to you. This is uh, the last place that we know that God uh, will live as um, read in Revelation. Let me pull this up here. Do we have that shot? Okay, great. Um, this is John. John is writing to a group of people. And we have to remember this. These were written for people in a different time. And that's tough. Because if you spend a lot of time in church, you are taught that these were written just for you. <laughs> that, that's not necessarily true. Uh, it is true. But we need to understand the context and we need to understand the greater story. It's part of this huge, vast, awesome story. And so this is John writing the book of Revelation to a specific group. And we're going to talk about them in a moment. So let's, let's read this. He says, in the final days, and he's describing this city that's like literally the streets are paved in gold. It's just this beautiful metaphor, an insanely gorgeous picture of what this new reality is going to look like. And in this new reality, he says, and I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. That's that idea of light, spiritual awareness. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamp is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. We could brush past that language pretty quickly, but like, Sean, could you put that, uh, that last slide up? Perfect. Um, this verse is really, really monumental if we, if we pay attention to it right. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. It's saying that the idea of light, that spiritual awareness, that idea that God is at work in the everything and in everywhere, in the places that we don't want him to be at work, right? That evil coworker, that enemy, or that group of people we don't understand, and the fact that God is actually at work there is tough. That's hard. That same book, Genesis, describes us being made at the end of that creation account, and it says that we are made in the image of God. That's just like square, like we are just made in the image of God. And if we take that seriously as followers of Jesus, that's a really hard thing to kind of wrestle with. Because we have to look into the face of a person who might have done terrible, terrible things. Might have hurt us personally, awfully, and we have to look at that and, and still understand that God is at work there. That this is a person made in the image of God. And so often we shut these gates. It's who's in, who's out language. If you read Revelation, there's a lot of this weird who's in, who's out language, but it has to be put into context. Otherwise, it can be abused. And unfortunately, in our churches today, it is abused. And if you were hurt by that in any kind of way, I want to apologize on behalf of Jesus people everywhere. Because <laughs> it's, it's so prevalent. Without the proper context, we can use this as like ammunition for who's in, who's out language and not the loving, crazy love of God that we can really, really, really dig into if we understand the context. So we have a city. God is in a city. And I love the idea of a city because we go from temple to among us to in us to all of us in the city. So that's a temple among us, in us, all of us in the city. 
You see how that progresses? The in us portion is very personal, right? That's me. That's my life. That's my walk with Jesus. That's my private time. But then at the end part, it's all of us in a city. And I love that metaphor of a city because in a city, I don't have to agree with you to buy bread from you. Or I don't have to agree with you to live next door to you, right? We need to be much, much more open in our, in our faith and in our, our interactions with people of faith to disagreeing. It's okay to disagree. If someone looked at McDonald's and was just like, that's it, that's the best, <laughs> never moving forward, then we wouldn't have crazy deliciousness in the world. It's because someone saw that, disagreed with it, and said, no, it could be this way, right? Can you imagine if we just stopped at the Palm Pilot? Like, you're going to have this phone, you're going to have this Palm Pilot, and you know what? We are good. <laughs> the, the story is always progressing and moving forward. But to do that, there's going to be points of contention and things that we don't necessarily all agree with, and we need to embrace that. That's living in a city. There are things about this city that drives me nuts, but I live here. And I live in harmony with all of this stuff. If we think about the hurt and the craziness that's going on in the world, which has just been absolutely relentless, you kind of have to look at that and like, okay, that too. I'm sitting in that too. I've got joy, we've got pain, we've got all of this stuff together, and it's all in this giant metaphor of a city, of this thriving thing that only works when different people are doing different things. That's the whole idea of this kingdom of God is that it's huge. It's way bigger than just a physical temple. But so often, and this is important, we really want that temple. We want that physical space. We want that place uh, with the who's in, who's out language. We want it to look a certain way. We want it to sound a certain way. And we, we crave it. And the whole point of the walk with Jesus is that he, he looks at you and he says, okay, remember when you had to like, physically go in the temple and like, slaughter a goat and then I was cool with you? Now all you have to do is just, just be with me. Not even come to it, just, just be with me, follow me. The whole point of this faith is follow. Follow. And that's an interesting concept because when we follow, we are, we are watching, we're paying attention. We're paying attention to where he's moving and meandering and we're simply along for the ride. And there's a comfort in that. So lots of country songs that are written about that. <laughs> but so often we want that, we want the temple, we want something with four walls that we can define and that we could actually say definitively, you belong in here and you don't belong in here. When Jesus has his crazy tantrum with the temple, this is why. It's not because he's going in there just trying to make some like punk rock statement. He is doing a little bit of that. But the other part of this is that the way the temple was designed was you had the temple, you had the veil, which only the high priest could go through one time a year. One time, that's it. And that is where God really, truly was. So one time a year, the high priest could go in through the veil, experience the presence of God, come out. And it was for like ritual cleaning and stuff. It wasn't even like to just like go have a party. It was just, I'm in there, I'm cleaning. This veil was there, and then you had a gate, and then you had a door, and you had all these barriers that were leading up to the presence of God. And where Jesus comes in and turns over the tables, which is a fascinating story. You should uh, look it up. It's hilarious. Um, he, he runs in and he just like, he starts like a teenager just throwing over and throwing a fit. 
And you could read that one way, which is really important, that he was like going against the Pharisees and that he was here to create this thing. But there's a, there's a deeper understanding when you look at the context of the day. Where he threw over these tables was this place called the Court of Gentiles. It was the space that you first entered the temple grounds, you'd be in the Court of Gentiles. And the Court of Gentiles is a really special place in that temple because if you were a Gentile, you were not permitted to go inside the temple. That wasn't okay, but you could go to the court of the Gentiles. And you could stand outside the temple. And for some people that had experienced this God and they just knew, man, this is real, and I want, I want in so bad that I will voluntarily be marginalized and I'll stand outside just so that I can be close to this thing. And over time, this court of Gentiles, because it was the only open space, became a marketplace where they would sell your said goats, sheep, whatever you could afford. And just imagine the one space you're allowed to be in has now become a store and a constant reminder of the place that you can't go into. So all these people atoning for their sins, they're all feeling better when they walk out. I have to just be here on the outside. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, what outrages him the most is not even the temple. It's this, like, you guys, the one space that people have to experience me, and you're selling stuff here? And that's why he throws over those tables as a way to say, like, no, 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 the whole thing is a temple. Everywhere. I am at work everywhere. And I'm especially at work in places where people are being kept out with in and out language. I exist there and I will fight for you there. I will throw over those tables, literally. I mean, there's one verse where he comes in with a whip. That's even better. <laughs> but that's hard. Like that, that's very, very difficult to understand just based upon the fact that like, we still crave the idea that you could go in to the temple and come out okay. That's a physical reminder, right? Jesus' final act with this temple, his final point of contention with this building, is when he is hung on a cross and he dies, and there's this amazing poetic moment, it's just this visual like stunner, where the moment he dies, it's said that the veil, which was that final barrier to where God was, is ripped and torn away. Meaning like, hey, it's available for all people. And that's good news for us right now. That's amazing. But as we talked about last week, there was an even more special context to that with the people that were living in the gospel account when the gospel was written for those people. And that was that they had just, they had just lived through the second temple, which they built one, and then that got torn down, and then they built another one, and their second temple is completely destroyed by the Roman Empire, just absolutely wiped out. And the Gospel of Matthew, the whole Gospel of Matthew, if you read it through with this understanding, it's constantly trying to point people away from the temple because what just happened had just wrecked them religiously. Where God lived, where they believed God was, was completely torn down. And that's why when Jesus shows up and he says, tear this building down and I'll rebuild it in three days, he's winking to those people saying, like, I see you, I know. 
I know. I know this is painful. I know this is like the worst time for you, but I see you. And I've rebuilt it in three days. That's me. It's available to you always. That's the whole point of understanding that it's everywhere, it's for all people, it's always. And I think the way that we approach church, I, I hear this a lot, I have to sit in this all week long, but the people that I'll talk to about leaving a specific religious community for another one or whatever it is, there's always this kind of theme that goes through it that uh, if you really like break it down, it would kind of look like this. My needs just weren't being met. And I get it. That's hard. I'm going to say something probably completely off the handle here. Church is not about you. <laughs> it's not about the individual. Church is a collection of people. It's a city. You see, in the temple, you're doing your own thing. In the city, you're working together to build something better. And that is why I love the idea of God being with us in the city, and there is no temple. We just have to sit in it all the time. And if we do that, then we're caring for one another. And that's what it's all about. This care, this love that God passes down through us for each other. When Jesus comes to the table and he describes what communion is going to be, the Eucharist, he says something really, really important. He says, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood poured out for you. But when it all culminates, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember. In other words, don't forget. And that forget leads us back to the idea of care. Remember. When you come to this table, remember. It's beautiful. When we come to this table, we come with our own story, and we come with our story. We're both coming as an individual and as a member of something so much bigger than ourselves. Remember. The idea of this is to understand that once we leave this space, we're called to enormous amounts of care for other human beings and other people. I want to let you guys know, uh, Napa has been on our minds like all week long. Uh, and we look for something tangible. Actually, Noah's dad is a pastor in Napa, so we have like a little church connect up there. So we were looking to see what we could do there. Uh, and he replied, and he's like, guys, I, I, want, I want your help. I would love it. We've got so much help. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's a very good problem to have. But like, that really, really struck me and blew me away. Just because in the, in the moments of this craziness, we're still seeing good stories come out. And there's still devastation. Like, Puerto Rico is still not getting the help that they need. But there, is moment, there are moments of joy in this. There are moments of beauty in this if we pay attention. I lead a chapel at a high school here in town. And uh, it was right two days after the shootings in Vegas. And it was just a weight over the whole room, uh, only magnified by the fact that one of the staff members there was actually at the concert. Her and her daughter were there. Uh, and they had to flee the scene. And uh, luckily, I mean, they didn't lose anyone. Um, but someone next to them did lose their life. And someone, the other person next to them was hit in the leg. And when she got up to describe this, I, one, I was just blown away she was even at school two days later. 
Uh, she's, a, she's a coach, so that probably makes more sense. <laughs> she's a lot tougher than I am. Uh, she was there, and when she got up to share, which we didn't know she was going to do, but she kind of came up, and we gave her the microphone, and she shared. And what I was blown away by is that she looked all of those students in the face, and she said, I know that you're scared. And it was a terrifying, terrifying situation that we were in. And then she turned it around and she said, but you would not believe the amount of love that I saw as we were all fleeing this thing. People helping, strangers pulling up in a truck saying, get in, come with us. Help just coming from the most unlikely places. A group of strangers now united and no one's strange anymore. And she just kept going, you would not believe the love. And what's important in that is not that it makes us feel better. What's important in that is that someone who survived this horrific event, the one thing they wanted to walk away with and tell everyone is that there was so much love. That's crazy town. I think when we're sitting in a year like this, in a context like this, and there will be more, it just seems like it's rolling on. God is literally with us, and he's just saying, look around, look hard, do the hard work, but you're going to see love, and you're going to see care. As followers of Jesus, we're the type that when you like see that situation going down, you're like, do I need to jump into that? The answer is probably yes. That's the tough part about following Jesus. The disciples didn't follow Jesus because of the company car that was provided. It was a tough deal. But it's a beautiful, beautiful deal. And we get spaces like this where we get to encourage each other, we get to hold each other up, and we get to unite because we're better together than we could ever be alone. Our little church sent $5,000 to Houston Relief, donated 100% of our week here. Nothing was kept, and that's risky for a church of our size, but we just said, no, all of it. And we can do that because we can utilize this group of people for great, great good. There's so much good that we can do together, and it's so awesome that we get to jump in that together and to do that. So let me pray for us this morning, and, uh, and we're going to receive communion. Um, let me pray. Lord God, I am just, uh, I'm so grateful for your great care, even in times where it is very, very difficult to see that. And uh, I pray over this space, I pray over this community that you would, um, you just light a fire under us to, to jump in, to be a community that acts and prays and does both of those together. We love you, Lord. Amen.